Welcome to Decode Your Burnout, the podcast where we crack the code on burnout based on three primary factors, your programming, environment, and personality. We also feature experts who debunk the myths about what it takes to be successful in their industry and spin those tips to fit the workplace so you can optimize the way you work. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Grossman, a psychologist turned coach, author, and burnout expert. If you're burned out and want to go from exhausted to extraordinary, book a free breakthrough session with me by going to bookachatwithsharon.com. And if you want to see how you're doing and what to focus on next, download the burnout checklist. You'll find the link in the show notes or go to bit.ly forward slash check your burnout. Now let's get started. Hello, Decode Your Burnout fans. Welcome to another episode with me, Dr. Sharon Grossman. And if you listened to my previous episode with Dan Lieberman, you know how good that was. I just had to have him back. And if this, this is your first time being exposed to him, let me tell you a little bit about who he is. Dr. Dan Lieberman is a clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at George Washington University. He is the senior vice president for mental health at Hims and Hers. He's the co-author of the international bestseller, which we will be talking about today, The Molecule of More, which is all about dopamine. And this book has been translated into more than 20 languages. He's also the author of the recently published book, Spellbound, which we talked about in our last episode with him. And the subtitle to that is Modern Science, Ancient Magic, and the Hidden Potential of the Unconscious Mind. I have so many questions for you, Dr. Dan. Welcome to the show again. Thanks for having me back, Sharon. It's great to be here. Yeah. So there is so much that is really a parallel between the work that you do and the work that I do that I think we really need to have a deep dive on dopamine and the behaviors that it leads to and how that relates to burnout. So I'm going to just jump right in. And I know you've got some specific things that you've prepared for us as well. So feel free to intertwine that. But, you know, one of the things you talk about in your book is the idea of up chemicals and down chemicals and how dopamine is this up chemical. And before I go into my question, maybe you can just take a moment to define that for people who haven't read the book. Yeah, you know, it's funny the way nature has kind of divided up our brains into processing information in two fundamental ways. And one way to think of it is up and down. When we look down, we're looking into what's called the peripersonal space. That's a space around us that's within our arm's reach. And it contains things that we own, have, control. We can use those things, consume them. You look down, you might see a pen, a cell phone, a cup of coffee, et cetera. And when we look up, on the other hand, we are looking out into the extrapersonal space, the world beyond our arm's reach. And that contains things that we don't have. And if we want them or need them, we don't just consume them right away. We've got to work to get them. We may need motivation, energy. We may need planning. We may need to think abstractly to strategize how to get it. And, you know, it seems like an uneven distribution. You know, peripersonal space, the down space is a few cubic meters. The up space is the rest of the universe. 
So it's like, okay, that's kind of a funny way to divide up three-dimensional space. Why is that? And I think the best way to understand that is to think about the old saying, either you have it or you don't. To our evolutionary ancestors, that could very easily be either you have it or you're dead. So the down space, which I also call the here and now, because it's right here in the present moment, that stuff you have. The up space, that stuff that you don't have, that you've got to work for to get, and that when you do get it, it's going to take place in the future. Could be a few seconds, it could be years, but it's fundamentally different what you have and what you don't. And, and the brain reflects that. Okay. So we've got this, these two different spaces. And under each of those umbrellas, if you will, there's different chemicals or, you know, we call these neurotransmitters and there's all different kinds of other names for it. And dopamine is an example of an up chemical, right? And one of the things I think you talk about is how, I mean, it is responsible for lots of things, but one of them is our reaction to unexpected events. Now, when somebody goes and works for a company or even for themselves as an entrepreneur, they don't expect to burn out. So all of a sudden they start to notice all of these red flags. Hopefully they're noticing it along the way. But a lot of times what we actually see is that they they miss all the signs or they're pushing through all the signs. And then they end up in a really severe state where like they're hospitalized, they've developed an autoimmune disease, there's something really severe happening. And all of that is unexpected. What could you say about that to folks in terms of if they're already there, kind of like what got them there? What should they learn from that? And what can we do to prevent that from happening? That's a complicated question. So when you think in evolutionary terms, what do we want from the future? Well, we want things to be better than they are now. We want to have more stuff. We want to be more secure. And that's what dopamine is about, trying to get that for us. And dopamine can make us feel good. It can make us feel bad. But if we get something good that's unexpected, dopamine goes up and we get that dopaminergic rush that we all know. You just won the lottery. You just got an award at work, et cetera, et cetera. On the other hand, if your expectations are not met, for example, you're standing in line for a latte, you get to the front of the line, oh, the latte machine is broken. Dopamine responds to that, but in the opposite direction, it goes down. And the feeling we experience in that case is resentment and deprivation. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that you say that because I just did a keynote on resentment. And uh, one of the things that I talked about is part of why we become resentful is when we have an unmet expectation. So I think yeah. there is that connection there as well. Yeah. So I think it's very closely related to burnout that we come into work with all of these expectations, maybe only that I'm going to have a smooth day and there's going to be no catastrophes uh, or people are going to treat me with respect or the work I'm going to do is going to be meaningful. Those expectations aren't met. We get a drop in dopamine and we feel that resentment deprivation. And that can lead to all kinds of suppression of the immune system, inflammation, and play havoc with our health. What's the solution? Well, we've got to come out of dopamine and into the here and now. We've got to step away from those expectations and start just focusing on 
reality as it is right here and right now. A lot of the suffering that we experience has to do with trying to push away the negative feelings, trying to make things better when it's futile, and then we get incredibly frustrated. And so I think the thing to do is to stop thinking about the future, stop trying to fix things, and just come into the present and and tolerate, persevere, just try to experience what is happening. Yeah, I mean, for sure, this is something that we're kind of wired to do the opposite, right? We're supposed to go towards pleasure and away from pain. And so this concept of like facing the unpleasant of just kind of persevering and tolerating discomfort is so against our evolution and just the way that we are. And yet, as you say, it is the key to avoiding suffering because as as the saying goes, pain is inevitable, but suffering isn't, right? This is something that we get to when we're trying to do these things where we're chasing after the dopamine. So actually, that was one of my questions. If dopamine represents this idea that we can never be satisfied, we're always looking for more. How do we transition to the down chemicals and really get to a place where we can savor the present? Yeah. If I could just back up for one moment and be neurosciencey for a minute. Do it. Because I, I love what you talked about the difference between pain and suffering. The structures in our brain that allow us to feel emotions, both positive and negative, are actually separate from the structure in the brain that makes us experience distress and suffering. That latter is the amygdala. And so even though it feels like they go hand in hand, they really don't. People can experience emotional pain and physical pain and not experience suffering. And we see that very clearly in very experienced meditators. If you put them under a brain scan and then show them pictures of distressing pictures, their emotional centers actually become more active than control subjects. They feel the emotion more, but the amygdala, the distress and suffering thing is very, very quiet. So they experience these emotions fully, but it doesn't bother them. It doesn't cause suffering. And I think that that's what we need to learn how to do, how to embrace the fullness of life, the light as well as the darkness, but be able to do it in a way that doesn't cause us to suffer, in a way that actually enriches our life. I mean, sometimes people will go to see sad movies and they will cry and go, oh, I had such a wonderful time. Because sometimes it it feels good to experience those emotions. So I think that the way to come out of dopamine, and there's there's many ways to do it and come into the here and now, many ways to do it. One one way, though, is to focus on sensory impressions. Our, Our sense organs feed into the here and now aspects of the brain. So if you want to come into the present moment, just start asking yourself, what am I seeing, hearing, smelling, touching? Um, and sometimes if you do that, you can, you can feel a, a rather dramatic shift in your subjective experience of what's going on. Yeah. Th- these are like real traditional mindfulness exercises, right? So you're basically saying, first, we have to be aware of this idea that in our brain, we have these different regions and that if we 
kind of go on autopilot, we end up in a place of suffering, that it's our responsibility and our decision that we get to make that we want to do it differently, which takes mindfulness to then transition over into this new way of being in the world, which is really being in the here and now. And as you say, embracing both the good and the bad. And that is a decision. But we actually first, I think, I think even just if there's one thing, if you're listening to this, that you take away from this episode, it's that you can make that decision, right? Like oftentimes we don't even think about it as a choice. It's just like, I I experience this negative emotion and I'm suffering and this sucks and I hate my life. And it's, you know, like all these negative things and we spiral and it's like, wait a minute. Did you know that you actually have a choice in the matter? Here's what's actually happening in your brain and why you feel the way you do and what you can do about it is this, right? Bring yourself into the present, shift away from the suffering. Here's how you do it. And I love your use of the word autopilot. You know, when we allow our minds to wander, it usually goes to negative places. And there's a reason for that. And that is that if we're anxious and worried, in many cases, that will actually increase our survival. If there's a rustling in the bushes and you're a very happy, optimistic person, you go, oh, it's probably a friend, but it turns out to be a tiger, you're dead. But if you're a very negative, anxious person, you say, oh my God, it's a tiger, but it turns out to be a friend, you're alive. So our brain is naturally wired in kind of a negative way. And so it does take effort to say, you know what? Sometimes worrying about the future is productive and I need to do that, but not always. We don't have to go through our lives 24-7 worrying about the future, but it does take an effort to say, I'm not going to engage in mind wandering. I'm going to focus on what I'm doing. And that leads to greater levels of happiness. So really important message that you have there. Another thing that dopamine is related to that I want to bring us to with regards to burnout is this idea of intoxication and addiction. And we know that when people are really stressed and they're suffering emotionally, where they sometimes go is that quick fix, right? They're going to want that. And people say this all the time. Oh, you know, I just want to take the edge off. So they're having that glass of wine every night after work. And they are engaging in all of these quick fix ideas, which often lead to addiction. And so can you speak to how do we cope with the negativity and the stress without resorting to these kinds of substances that can actually, as I say, create a secondary problem? Yeah. Yeah. You know, turning to substances is like borrowing money on a high interest credit card. It's great for a few minutes or whatever, but you you pay it back with big, big interest. Whatever suffering you reduce now with alcohol or marijuana or other substances, you're going to have more down the line. So it's not a good way to do it. What's a better way? Well, there's tons of better ways. And which one's going to work for you is going to depend on who you are as an individual. So moving your body is a great way. Go out and take a walk. Playing sports is even better because you really get focused into the game. Socializing. If you're an extroverted person, if you're fortunate enough to have supportive loved ones, that might work better than anything else. Because 
if there's one thing our brains are attuned to more than dopamine, it's social interaction. And again, that goes back to evolutionary forces and what increases our odds of survival. There's all kinds of creativity, woodworking, knitting, cooking. There's all kinds of things, but really it should be things that involve physicality and things that make us focus on what we're doing right now so that our minds don't spiral off into these negative places. Yeah, this is a really good reminder that we actually have very healthy coping strategies that we can resort to when we're stressed out. And it's really helpful to actually plan for these things in advance, right? When we don't have that planning and we're already in a place of negativity and stress, it is so hard to then think straight and say, you know what, I'm going to go, you know, color in with with colored pencils, you know, those kind of stress relief drawings yeah, those are or great. Right. Or like you're just not in that place. But if you set yourself up and you say, you know what, I'm going to have a drawer where I've got all these different things that I can pull out when I'm stressed out, or I've got a document on Google that I, you know, can pull up when I'm not thinking straight that will remind me of some of the things that I can do. Or I have an accountability partner that we go out for walks after work every day or whatever it is you're going to set yourself up for success more easily. So I think that's really important. I think that's an example of just, it's always hard to shift from one activity to another. There's that threshold we've got to get over. And if you just remind yourself that that's part of human nature and that if you make that shift, you will feel better. Yeah. And I think there's something to be said about you need, in order to cross over that threshold, sometimes you just need that quick thing that's going to shift your state. And for a lot of people, it might be something like music, right? Just turning on, maybe you have a playlist that when you're stressed, you just press play. It's already there for you. You know that when you listen to it, it has an effect on you emotionally, can get you kind of transitioned over to another state so that you can then go and do the other things on your self-care list. Yeah. I Um, think the key is to make this step as small as possible. It's easy to turn on music. If you prepared in advance, it's a small step. Yeah. Okay. So I want to shift gears into the control circuit. So you talk about control, which is a really big thing when it comes to dopamine, because we want to talk about You know, there's a lot of people who burn out because they hold on too tightly, right? You have like the the perfectionists. These are the people I call the thinkers. And then you've got the people who maybe have too little and they're, you find them maybe in the addiction area, right? Where they've just, they've just lost all control. So what can you share with us about what what we need to know about dopamine and control and how can we use this to help ourselves make better decisions? Yeah. Dopamine does a variety of things within the brain. And most people, when they think about dopamine, they think about its activity in the desire circuit, makes us want stuff and it rewards us when we do evolutionary things like eating, winning competitions, et cetera. That's a circuit that we share with animals. But there's a newer circuit that is really most developed in human beings. That's the control circuit, and it involves the frontal lobes, the most evolutionarily advanced part of the brain. It's also focused on the future, but in a different way. The desire circuit says, I want something right now. 
I want a donut. I want a glass of wine, et cetera. The control circuit, though, looks farther into the future. And it might say something like, you know, if you eat that donut, it's not going to be healthy for you. You're going to put on weight. The control circuit helps us work with abstract ideas, the laws of physics, mathematics, justice, beauty, in order to take a much bigger view on the world. And it's part of what allows us to exert control over our instincts and do things that animals are incapable of. So what would you say if somebody is reverting to that wine glass after, after work every single day, what does that mean about the desire circuit and their control circuit and how can they shift the balance? Yeah. So, so there's an imbalance. They're making short-term decisions under the prompting of the desire circuit that are not good long-term. The desire circuit is drowning out the control circuit. And what can they do? The obvious thing to do, and it's wrong, preface, the obvious thing to do is say, well, I'm going to use my control circuit. I'm going to use willpower. I know that the glass of wine is bad for me. And so I'm going to white knuckle it and I'm not going to have it. That doesn't work very well, unfortunately. In many cases, the desire circuit's stronger than the control circuit. And we know in general, willpower is just a crummy tool. Use the control circuit in a different way. Use the control circuit's cognitive abilities to strategize in advance so you don't even let the desire circuit have a chance. That might involve saying, you know what, for a while, maybe I need to get the wine out of the house because if I got to drive to the liquor store to get the bottle, I won't do it. Or you might say, you know, maybe I'll, I'll talk to my roommate and say, hey, when you see me going for a glass of wine, come over and give me a big hug. That will help me. So in the addiction community, we have a saying, it's better to be smart than strong. You've got to strategize in advance before those cravings generated by the desire circuit take over. Yeah. So again, it's about pre-planning your coping strategy, having things lined up for yourself. And, and that allows you to be more, quote unquote, in control. And is there something about being too in control or like the balance being the other way where you're too in the control circuit and not enough in the desire circuit? I think so. You know, if we, if we want to imagine what that might look like in a person, we might sort of imagine someone who's kind of like a bloodless calculating machine. Everything they do is perfectly rational. And they just don't seem to have that animal drive within them. And I think that would be an example of too much control circuit. So somebody who is just like playing by the rules, they maybe don't have compassion. They're very critical, very judgmental, very like it has to be like this, very black and white. Right. And, and they often they're often the kind that criticize other people, they constantly tearing down other people's ideas, but they never generate anything themselves. Mm. And, and I feel like I'm being awfully mean to these people because we do need these people, but they can get annoying sometimes. Well, because it's uh, it does lack that human element of you know being vulnerable and sharing of yourself, and uh, you know it's easy to tear other people down, right? It's just yeah. hard to put yourself out there. Because those exact people are afraid of people just like them that will then 
tear them down, right? So it creates this fear of vulnerability and of sharing of yourself. So they're like the way that they hold the control is by not putting themselves out there and being able to criticize everyone else. Yeah. Now I know it's not anybody who's listening to this show. (laughs) If you have people like that in your life, what you need to do is you need to try to see the value in their criticism and, and say, you know, this might be unpleasant, but maybe they're making my idea better by pointing out the weaknesses. Absolutely. I think as they say, you know, there's usually an element of truth in everything and maybe it's not everything. All right. I'll give you that. Maybe not because maybe someone's just bitter or there's some kind of other driving mechanism. But think about, is there any element of truth in feedback that you get in the criticism that someone else has shared with you? You may not take all of it with you, but if there's a little nugget in there that can help you be better, then you can turn that negative situation around. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we've talked about the up and down chemicals. We've talked about transitioning between them. We've talked about intoxication and addiction, control circuit and desire circuit. You talk also about this idea of mental time travel. And that is something that allows you to engage in future, right? We talk about intentions. I actually just wrote an article on, you know, the power of intentions and how important it is. We talk about things like visualizations and all of these tools that allow us in our mind to generate this idea of a future that we want to create. So I I want to talk about that because, you know, it's not just that the future is evil and we all have to be all the time in the here and now. I think there is space for being in the future. But I think the way that you're talking about it is very strategic. So share with us, please, how you speak about this idea and how it relates to dopamine. Yeah. So one of the key features of the future is that it doesn't have a real existence. They're just possibilities that may or may not come true. And what our dopamine system allows us to do is to work with these things, to manipulate possibilities that are not real. And that's an enormously powerful thing to do. So for example, I live in Washington, DC. If I want to go to New York City, I have choices. I can take the bus, I can take a train, I can take an airplane. They all have advantages and disadvantages. And probably what I'm going to do in order to make that decision is engage in mental time travel. Mm -hmm. I'm going to imagine myself at the airport, on the train, on the bus. What does it feel like? What did I get? What am I missing? And then without actually having to try those things out, I kind of get a sense of which one is going to work best. So that's where imagination comes from. That's partly where creativity comes from. So this is not an evil system at all. It's just an enormously powerful one that we can use productively or destructively. Yeah, it's so good. And I know one of the ways that you talk about that we can use this is this idea of dream incubation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I love dreams. Dreams are very exciting. When we are dreaming, dopamine is very active. And that's because we're dealing with unreal things. We're processing things that do not exist. And one of the bizarre things about dreams is that it often provides us with answers to questions that our waking mind was not able to figure out. 
And you frequently hear artists and musicians saying it came to me in a dream. Mm-hmm. You even hear scientists and mathematicians saying the answer came to me in a dream. The most famous example is Kekulé. He discovered the structure of the benzene molecule. First molecule discovered that's a ring. And today those ring molecules are enormously important. But nobody, nobody thought of a ring. Everyone was thinking about lines and branches. And one day he was sitting in front of his fire, editing a textbook. He fell asleep and he saw visions of snakes eating their own tails. The Ouroboros, which we may have talked about at our last, at our last meeting. Anyway, he realized it was a, a ring and it revolutionized organic chemistry. So dreams can be powerful and there are ways that we can encourage dreams to answer difficult questions we have, and that's dream incubation. And there are a few steps. One is that we activate dopamine around a certain subject through desire. The more we want something, the more dopamine it's going to trigger. So if you want a dream to give us an answer, it's got to be really, really important to us. And so we might spend time thinking about how will our life change? if we get the solution to this problem. And then the second thing is that dreams tend to be very visual. So it's helpful to visualize the problem before you go to bed at night. That will also trigger potentially helpful dreams. And finally, maybe the single most important thing is have a pen and pad of paper next to your bed. Because I don't know about you, but I've had the experience of having these incredibly important dreams and I take a breath and they're gone. They're gone within seconds. Yeah. Can you share maybe from your personal experience, something that came to you in a dream that you're so glad you captured because you had that pen and paper there? Yeah. So um, I usually get these kinds of ideas, not exactly in dream, but in what's called the hypnagogic state. Uh, and that's the state when you're in between sleep and wakefulness. And whenever I'm writing, one of my biggest problems with writing is connecting up ideas. I I tend to have a bunch of disjointed ideas in my mind. The Mm. connections are hard to make, to make it a coherent narrative. Another problem I have is that I've got this very complicated idea I want to communicate, and I just can't think of a simple way to express it. And And more than a dozen times, I've been lying in bed, drifting off to sleep, and it just hits me like a freight train. And and in the beginning, I said, wow, that's so great. There's no way I'm going to forget that. That's earth shattering. In the morning, (laughs) I've got no idea. So so then I started writing them down. That's awesome. So do you have a collection now of all these things? Do you have like a a notebook that you have thing, you know, night after night, things that you've written down? I've got a Word document. I I put them in the Word document, but yeah. Gotcha. Awesome. Love that. All right. So we've talked about tons of things. And I know that when it comes to dopamine, not everybody is as knowledgeable as you are, clearly. So there are some myths. People have some misunderstandings or things that maybe they think are true and they're not. And that's important for us to debunk. So what do you got for us? All right. Let's see. So myth number one, dopamine is rational and will lead us to make good decisions. Unfortunately not. Dopamine is the molecule of more, doesn't know when to say stop. 
And so I may have one donut and I say, gosh, it would be lovely to have another donut. I may have bought a cell phone last year. It's perfectly fine. But my dopamine is saying, wow, that new one is awfully shiny and beautiful. And so, you know, we've got to be good managers of our own brain. And we've got to critically evaluate the things that our brain throws at us and decide which ones we're going to pursue with our intentions and which ones we're going to form intentions not to pursue. I love those two examples. When you said the first one, I thought of like a kid in the candy store where you're like, just pick one thing. And they're like, but can I please have, there's so many great things, you know, I want all of it. Right. And that is totally normal. Right. We're just wired that way. And you also brought it back to this very adult example of what us adult, what's our version as an adult of the kid in the candy store. It's the kid at the Apple store that we want to buy all the gadgets, right? (laughs) So that was a great, great example. All right. What's the next myth? All right. Next myth is that uh, if you've got lots of dopamine, it's going to make you happy. And that's not true. What dopamine does is it gives you pleasure. And pleasure is different from happiness. Mm. Pleasure is not enduring. The thing about dopamine is it's only focused on the future, whereas happiness is something that you experience in the present. Now, dopamine is a salesman. It wants you to do what it wants you to do. And it's not above lying to get what it wants. And I think a great example of that is buyer's remorse. A lot of times when we're excited, about getting something, a new car, a new pair of shoes, a new cell phone. We develop this idea. If I get this, I'm going to be happy. Yes. Uh, right. That's my like life's going to change. Going to wake up every morning with my new cell phone. It's like, woohoo. I'm satisfied. No, it's not going to happen because the reason we get buyer's remorse is because when a possibility, something we're going to buy becomes a reality, something that we have. Dopamine shuts down. And that's physiological. It's because dopamine cannot process things in the here and now. It can only process things in the future. So it writes checks that it cannot cash. And so when we get that thing and all of a sudden, boom, we get buyer's remorse, our mood crashes. That's what's happening. We didn't really want the cell phone. We wanted the dopamine that went along with the cell phone. And now that we own the cell phone, the dopamine is gone. Or in your words, we wanted the pleasure. We wanted the happiness and it it sold us happiness, but we got pleasure and it was temporary. Yeah, that's right. That's you right. Know, and so that's where the sales money, you know, kind of tactic comes in where it's like, you'll get all of this amazing happiness. You're going to be thrilled. And then you're like, actually, it was fun for five minutes. And now what? Right now I'm on to the next thing. And this is very important, not just when it comes to like shiny object syndrome, but I also think it's really important when it comes to work and you know, the reason that a lot of times people burn out is because they are focused on the promotion, on finishing the project, on mm. their goals, on their accomplishments, and they just keep pushing through yeah. with this idea of like, when I get that promotion, then I'll be happy. When I get this thing done, then I'll be, you know, like you're constantly living in the tomorrow and you're really sacrificing the self-care and everything because you don't have time, you don't have energy, you're focused just on getting the thing. And 
that's where you're out of balance. And that's why people are burning out. And we never learn, right? We say, we oh, if I just get promoted manager, I'll be happy. If I just get promoted as a senior manager, I'll be happy. Yeah. And we always think that the next step is going to do it. And for some reason, we don't remember the previous steps didn't turn out as we hoped. So does dopamine somehow like obliterate memory? Like what's happening here? <laughs> I think it does. I just think it's such a persuasive salesman that we go, all right, let's not think about that. This next one is going to be it. All right. <laughs> okay. So, you know, obviously that's a very important myth to debunk. And what's the third one you got for us? Let's see. All right. So the third one I've got is that dopamine is a never-ending source of motivation that can constantly drive us to better and better things. That's a myth. And it's a myth more in modern times than it was to our evolutionary ancestors. For evolutionary ancestors, dopamine drove them to get food, shelter, tools, reproductive partners, good things. Today, Dopamine is drive. Well, today, what's happened is that that very very smart marketers have realized how powerful the dopamine system is, and so they've developed products that are specifically designed to stimulate dopamine, kind of addict us or even enslave us into this. So, drugs are the most obvious answer that they artificially stimulate the dopamine center, and they're so powerful that they stimulate it more. Than natural rewards do. And so even though we might get pleasure from work or from family or from hobbies, the dopamine we get from cocaine is a lot more powerful. And so we give up all that other stuff and we devote our life to using the drug. Less dramatic, but also still very powerful and destructive are things like social media. Social mm -hmm. media is designed to give us little quick hits of dopamine, likes we get to our posts, or the potentially interesting, helpful articles in our news feeds. And so we doom scroll. We just go, go, go. We get more and more unhappy, more and more dysphoric. But our dopamine system is telling us, yeah, but there might be something in there that is going to improve your life. Keep going. So when you say that it's not true that dopamine is a never-ending source of motivation, does that mean that we can run out? I think the answer is yes. I think that the dopamine system works best when it's fresh and can easily get tired out. So if you think about it, you know, when, when you watch that first TikTok video, it may give you a little bit of a dopamine hit, uh, but then you can't stop. And by the time you're watching the 10th one, you get nothing out of it anymore, but you find it very difficult to stop. In, in, yeah. in drug abuse parlance, it's called chasing the dragon you never get the pleasure that you got from that very first hit. Yeah. And it's kind of like, I guess, somebody who maybe has the compulsion to eat nonstop. And it's like, I can't stop until I finish all the danishes in the box or all the cookies in the jar, right? It's like, I'm on this treadmill and I can't stop. And it's not pleasurable either. And it's not, but I feel compelled to continue. Yeah. I, like I can't stop myself. I know. Yeah. I, I experienced that. You know, the first bite is full of pleasure and it's wonderful. The 10th bite has no pleasure at all. So why can't we stop? So and, does and this come back to that idea that you were saying earlier about plan ahead? So like if you're going to have the chocolate cake or if you're going to dive into that cookie jar, make sure that, you know, you're not going into the jar. Like you take 
the number of cookies that you're you're intending to eat, put it in a bowl somewhere separate and only have access to that. Like what's the solution here? That's a great solution. The other th- important thing to know is, is that for some reason, the signals between your stomach and your brain travel really, really slowly. And so if you're eating too fast, you're going to make yourself sick before you feel satisfied. So eat slow. And after those two cookies, if you want a third cookie, tell yourself, all right, you can have a third cookie, but you got to wait 10 minutes. And, And that might be easier than saying no third cookie at all. And after the 10 minutes are gone, you might say, you know what? I think I'm good. I think I don't need that third cookie. So one of the things I heard another coach mention is you can have whatever you want, but you've got to plan for it 24 hours ahead of time. Oh, nice. Right. So it's like, you want that chocolate cake? You can have it tomorrow. And then like the next day shows up and then you're like, oh, but I really want a second. You're like, no, you got to wait another 24 hours. Right. (laughs) So it's like, you have to plan these things in advance and then you give yourself permission to do certain things, but you're much more in control because you've planned for it as opposed to the impulsivity just takes over. And now you find yourself overeating or over binging on whatever it is. Yeah, it has to do with the two dopamine circuits. The desire circuit wants what it wants right now, and it's irrational. The control circuit, which plans farther, is rational, and it doesn't give us that same level of craving. And so it's better to run your life a little bit more on the control circuit. Yeah, and that prevents that buyer's remorse where you're like, I just ate all this stuff. What was I thinking? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Amazing. Well, Dan, you had shared so many amazing tips and just even just ways of thinking about what's happening in our own brains and how our behavior is being driven in ways that we may not even understand. So it's important for us to have this information so we can make better decisions. So I really thank you for sharing all of that. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. And we will definitely link to your book, The Molecule of More, in the show notes because everybody should be reading this. We all have dopamine. So if you got it, you got to read it. (laughs) Is there anything else you want to share with our audience before we wrap up? I think we covered a lot of really interesting material. Thanks so much for that. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for for being here. It's super valuable. Now, for all of you thinkers out there, what did you think of the show? If you are a feeler, how did hearing this make you feel? And for all of you doers, what are you going to do based on what you've heard? Regardless of what your personality code is, my goal is to spread the word that burnout is a unique experience. And by decoding it, you can find solutions that are equally unique to you. Help me spread this message by subscribing to the show on Apple or Spotify and leaving us a review, telling us what you think, feel, or do differently because of the show. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can leave a comment or questions to answer in future episodes. And please recommend the show to anyone struggling with burnout. And finally, if you are ready to take the next step with me to DYB, go to decodeyourburnout.com and I'll see you right back here next week. Bye, everybody.